Welcome to the Ignatius Press Podcast. I'm Mark Brumley. I hope you enjoy the discussion in this episode. For more information about Ignatius Press, check out our website at ignatius.com. Well, welcome everyone to the Ignatius Press live event here. I'm Mark Brumley, and today's guest is the Ignatius Press author, Fiorella de Maria, author of See No Evil, a Father Gabriel mystery. See, we, we've got props, so I'm going to hold this up. Great. Um, I'm going to tell folks a little bit about you, Fiorella. You are an Anglo-Maltese writer living in Surrey, England. Yes. Uh, with your husband and your children. You grew up in West Country, excuse me, I should say West County. And I'm from St. Louis. We had West County. So you're from West Country. Uh, you studied English literature at a small school in England called Cambridge. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you are the winner of the National Book Prize of, of Malta. And you've got a ton of novels with Ignatius Press. I'm going to rattle off some of the titles. By the way, I don't have them all here. And this is an in, in indication of how much I love your work. I don't have them all here. I try to keep as many Ignatius Press books here in my home office as possible because I need them in the course of work, right? So I go pull them off as I did here. But your books, I love them so much, I give them away. And then I find like, oh, I don't have that book here. So I'm going to mention some. I won't have them all. I may show some in due course here. So uh, Most Dangerous Innocence, uh, We'll Never Tell Them, Do No Harm, and My Favorite, Poor Banished Children. Well, maybe we'll talk about why that's my favorite. It, okay. I know that's the first one we did, and it's a little bit like, since you're in England, I'll, I'll use a Doctor Who analogy. It's usually like the first doctor you see is your doctor. And <laughs> it's kind of my, the first of your books I read is sort of my entree into your world. So I love it. Anyway. Gosh, it was a dark entrance, though, wasn't it? <laughs> it was. Well, let's put it this way. Um, although the subject matter of the Father Gabriel mysteries is dark in its own way. The treatment of it is very different than the treatment of dark material in um, Poor Banished Children. Yeah. But we're here to talk about uh, your latest Father Gabriel mystery, Father Gabriel mystery, so see no evil. And we've done two others. We, we, we've done The Vanishing Woman mm -hmm. and The Sleeping Witness. So I've put them out there. And I have to say at the outset, you bear an uncanny resemblance to one of the author to the author of one of our other Ignatius Press books. Okay, uh, and that's a book which I have around here somewhere. Uh, it's called *The Abolition of Woman*. <laughs> Funny that, isn't it? It's just my twin. Yeah. I have never seen the two of you together in a room, so <laughs> that makes me wonder. But you, you, know, you, you look exactly like Fiorella Nash. I, I'm amazed. Yeah, I keep my my um, bioethics and my creative writing separate. There you so go. Well, it's okay. easier that way. So let's talk about um, See No Evil, a Father Gabriel mystery. Father Gabriel is uh, obviously he's a clerical detective of sorts, and in a line of clerical detectives, you know, we have Father Brown, yeah. Father Dollar. There, there probably I think there are you know some three hundred or so clerical or religious detectives in fiction. But the ones we're probably most familiar with are Father Brown by Chesterton and Father Dowling by um, the late, great Ralph McInerney. Yeah. Um, and now we have Father Gabriel. So tell us a little bit about Father Gabriel before we kind of get into the particulars of this novel. Well, um, 
You asked me before if he was based on a real priest. I'd just like to say I, I can't possibly answer that um, or, or, you know, there'll be people who will never speak to me again. Um, <laughs> he's actually slightly based um, on, on my son, in fact, who is uh, autistic. And Father Gabriel is supposed to be a little bit on the spectrum, mm-hmm. um, which is why he gets very obsessive. When he, he comes up with an idea, he can't let it go. Why he finds rules very difficult to obey, not because there's any malice intended, but because once he's got his head fixed on an idea, nothing, even the abbot, will get in the way of him finding out. That's why he sometimes has disastrous social interactions where you know he brings about a huge silence in a room because he said the wrong thing. Um, so it's an affectionate look at, at um, Asperger's really of um, autism so that's a little bit his background I, I love Father Gabriel he's one of my favorite creations I feel I've because it's a series I feel like I've had the chance to really get to know him you know normally you get to the end of the book you close the door on the book and that's the end of that creative world but the great thing with the series is you know you can really develop the characters and sort of get close to them. Okay well let me ask you this about this uh, particular um set of books or series of books um why you, you know you're an established writer or prize winner and all of that uh, why do you choose to write in the mystery novel genre and why do you choose to have a priest as your central character well my dirty little secret is i love crime fiction i really really love detective fiction i read it all my life. I scared myself half to death age seven reading my first Sherlock Holmes mystery. I didn't even realize it was the most frightening of the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, the speckled band, you know, with the snake comes down on someone's pillow. Um, I did not sleep well after reading that, but I've just always been interested in the puzzle and the, the human drama and, and that, that whole, the whole package. And of course, I suppose in Britain, you know, we've got Agatha Christie and Conan Doyle, a huge long heritage of sort of crime, crime novels. So it was an accident waiting to happen. I was always going to write a crime story sooner or later. Um, and one Easter, in fact, I was just with my in-laws and we plotted out the idea amongst us. You know, my, my mother-in-law came up with some suggestions. My sister-in-law came up with others. And you know, we've all sat and watched Agatha Christie's together. So it sort of started there and, and just developed. Well, that's fascinating. You know, uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar, the great Catholic Swiss, Swiss theologian, um, famously loved Agatha Christie novels. Mm-hmm. And uh, I heard a story uh, last summer at a Balthazar conference. Uh, the priest who had a uh, priest invited him over to England, and uh, you know, Balthazar stayed with him for a number of days. And uh, you know, he usually would work in the afternoon and take a nap. And uh, uh, but then he found out that at this time, this was back in the 80s, I guess mid 80s. The BBC Miss Marple series was mm-hmm. on. And so, you know, he would come down uh, and uh, the priest would ask him, are you going to work? Are you going to take a nap? He said, no, no. Can we watch Miss Marple? So yeah. Hans Urs von Balthasar loved to read Agatha Christie, but he also loved to watch her in the, in the uh, Miss Marple series. Yeah, we, we all grew up with those, with the Miss Marple and the Poirot, the beautiful David Suchet production, yes. the huge backdrop to life, really. Yeah. So why a priest? I liked the idea of a figure who was 
interested in the truth and injustice, but who was also interested in the person and the human soul. And with Father Gabriel, you have that constant conflict that he has, that on the one hand, he wants to find a killer. He wants to clear the name of the person who's been falsely accused, but he's intensely concerned with the soul of the person, the, um, the killer, what's going to happen to them, the fact that they're going to probably hang, um, are they going to die an unprovided for death? You know, there's there's a, a much deeper sort of spiritual element to a priest detective because you know, it's not just a question of solving that puzzle. It's also a question of redeeming, you know, the person, saving the person. Hmm. So I'm trying to think about how to talk about this without spoilers. It's you know. really difficult. <laughs> yeah, because I, I, you know, I hear in everything you're saying, I know what happens in the story, and I know the particulars of where those ideas are exemplified and all of that. Let me do this. Um, can you give us a setup for this, this, this mystery? Just give us kind of the basic setup, when and where and who and how. We won't. You know, we won't spoil the outcome. We don't say who done it, okay. but give us a setup. I'll try and do this. You'll have to go back afterwards and bleep or something. If I, <laughs> I, I live in fear of giving away the endings. Um, we'll just say the butler did not do it. The butler didn't do it, no. Um, all this series is set just after the war. So it's about 1947, that sort of time. So you've got huge social change going on, a country trying to recover from a major war, soldiers coming home, trying to get back to civilian life, a lot of grief, a lot of, a lot of war dead, a lot of refugees trying to start a new life, people with histories that they're trying to escape from or trying to reinvent themselves. And this particular book is the classic country house mystery. It's Christmas time, a whole lot of people gathered together for a, a dinner party. The next morning, someone's dead in the mist and he witnessed a massacre that's mm. the thing that it looks as if was, was the motivating factor he was about to write a book to reveal something so someone had a reason to want him dead but of course in the course of the book father gabriel starts to discover that there are all sorts of other dirty little secrets lurking around this group of people very few of them are really innocent so, so there, there are multiple strands Okay, so, um, all right, so now let me ask this question. You know, Chesterton in Father Brown is very philosophical as a, as a fiction writer. Yeah. Not just in Father Brown, but in Man Who Was Thursday, Ball and the Cross, uh, Man Alive, Flying In, all these novels, they have characters. The characters are actually very lively characters, but in some ways the characters are ciphers for philosophical ideas and so on. Mm -hmm. Reading your book, and, and there's there's an argument for that kind of writing and that those kinds of mysteries and the Father Brown mysteries and so on. A lot of ways, you know, they say that Father Brown, uh, Sherlock Holmes looks for external clues, Father Brown looks for interior ones or something like that. Yeah. Um, your, your mystery writing isn't Chestertonian in that sense, uh, but there are ideas at play. How do you as a writer find the balance between um, telling a story and developing characters in their own right and conveying ideas without completely instrumentalizing your characters in your plot? 
Well, I think you have to start completely from the, the basis that you're telling a story. More than anything else, you're a storyteller. You're there to create good characters and interesting plots and tell a story. Um, first and foremost, that is what a novelist is supposed to do. If I want to write uh, theology, I'll go and get a doctorate and, and write a, um, a, a thesis. If you start from that basis, then the messages, I feel, just come through naturally. You know, I think if you start within the, the Catholic moral universe in which we all live, and it permeates everything, it permeates the way we live, therefore it permeates how we write. And it, it shouldn't be necessary to force the messages. They should naturally flow from the action. Okay, so now you've set up this story and you've kind of given us your philosophy or approach as a writer. How did, what, what's the kind of, uh, what do you see as the big motif or the big, um, big ideas behind the characters and the plot of this story? Or can you put it that way? This, this one out of all of the three of them is mostly dealing with collusion with evil and how you can be a small player in a much bigger crime. And this is something that people throughout Europe had to deal with in the years following the war and are still dealing with to some extent, um, the failure to resist or um, those minor acts of collaboration. Um, in this book, the characters are, are English, they weren't under occupation, and yet many of them have one way or the other profited from the evils that the Nazis committed. And in some cases, even the minor characters have got themselves caught up in situations they know were immoral. So the idea that collusion of evil with evil is always wrong, even if it's in a very minor capacity, is a, a sort of theme that runs all the way through the book. It's also about taking responsibility for one's actions. Father Gabriel has to really push some of the characters to stop making excuses um, all the way through. You know, this is, you're talking sort of roughly the time of Nuremberg, an awful lot of I was just obeying orders in, in a much smaller way in a, in a West Country town. Father Gabriel is constantly having to push the characters to say, no, you knew that was wrong. Why did you do it? And how will you take consequences? You know, so it's, it's a lot of it comes out of conscience, you know, and, and the, the way the characters try to avoid that. Well, I have to say, again, I'm not going to give away the ending or anything. I have to say that as I was coming to the ending of the book, and I, to be honest, this didn't happen the first time when I read it as a manuscript. And sometimes that's the case. You read, you're kind of looking for different things when you read it as a manuscript. But I read it, and I often do this, after we've published a book, I read it as a published book. And when I read it the second time, uh, again, with, I don't want to sound pietistic and make it sound like, you know, this is a, you know, you, you should take this to confession or something. It's a fun read. I mean, it's just a fun read as, as you know, a, a mystery novel, right? But as I was approaching the end, of the end of the book, and I was thinking about some of the characters and some of the justifications that they gave for the things that they did, I'm thinking, well, that's a pretty weighty excuse. And then... Uh, what you did with the Father Gabriel character was great because it just, it didn't deny the weight of those excuses, but it cut straight through to the truth yeah. and, and laid it bare. Yeah. And in, in a way, because Father Gabriel does have this sort of spectrum way of looking at things, he's not fooled by anything. 
he he doesn't get deception and he does and so it's impossible to take him on a ride in that sense he, he will always see through everything um, and that's one of his strengths in fact as a priest that he can very gently bring a person back and say well that doesn't really make sense does it having said that out of all the three books it was the ending of see no evil that's caused the most comment i've had People say they were very shocked, um, very very surprised by the way it was handled. So, um, be interested to know what readers make of it. Well, now I can say that the when I first read it as a manuscript, I was surprised. Um, I don't say I was shocked, but uh, once once the character of Father Gabriel kind of goes down a certain trajectory and how he's interacting with the characters, then it's it just it's a matter of truth. It has to come out the way it came out in a certain sense so it wasn't shocking in that way but um yeah the whodunit and and how it happened was a surprise to me anyway <laughs> I mean, really it was, it was a surprise phew I'm, I'm always glad when it's a surprise i have a horror that it's too predictable because i know how it ends Right. So yeah. that brings me to the question that I know uh, mystery writers often are asked, you know, how do you start with the mystery? Do you start with the crime? You, you know who do, who does it and how it's done and then you build the story around it? Or do you start in some other way where you start with a, a plot and it unfolds and, you know, yeah. the, the... So you have I think you have to start with the crime and sort of work your way out, you know, and then, then sort of undo the puzzle. Um, I find, I mean, I, I don't just write crime fiction, as you know, I write literary fiction too. When I'm writing other kinds of novel, I don't make plans. I will sketch out some characters and I'll have a period I want to write about, like the First World War or the slave trade or, or whatever. And once I've created the main characters, I just let it flow because I want to be part of the journey. And I, I want to be as surprised as the reader by how it turns out. Um, but with a crime novel, you can't really do that in the same way because you have to make sure that the clues are released in a particular order, that you don't give away too much information at the end. It's quite a formulaic genre in a way. There are a lot of rules. And, and you have to do it without it coming across too formulaic. It's got yes. to be engaged in reading. Yeah. So, so having, having to... to, to to write a cliche and pretend it's not a cliche because that's what people would say, you know, it's so it, it's quite a delicate balancing act, but it's a more technical form of writing in a way because so much of it is focused on, on the puzzle. Let me ask you about, uh, I want to come back to this particular book, but I, I, I want to ask you about um, crime writing more generally in mystery novels and detective stories and so on. You know, there are those stories that, set out to they keep it a mystery and the the mysteries who did it who did the crime and so on then there's what i call the colombo approach you're familiar with the american detective colombo now you see the crime being committed don't you in colombo you see the crime being committed you know who did it i didn't like that yes you what i didn't like that, you didn't I, like I that. because yeah. there it's not so much who it's not who did it at all you know who did it it's how is he going to get caught and so I'm kind of curious. Uh, you, so you you don't like the Columbo way of t doing a, a mystery? No, it's reasonably unusual because most crime fiction does leave it as a mystery for the reader to work out. So it's interesting that Columbo that it's it's completely different. That yes, the story is really about the detective working it out and you're watching him working it out. Um, I've always liked a mystery, I, and I like to. 
I like to be kept guessing. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I do find because I write crime fiction, it's harder to read crime fiction where I can't work it out because there are, in oh, fact, only so many plots. There are only so many people who could have done it. Um, I ruined an Agatha Christie for my father once where, um, we, you know, the, the murder had been committed and you know, you're having the first interviews. And uh, the doctor said, oh, I had, and you can't speak to her. She died of septicemia. And I went, it's the doctor. <laughs> <laughs> because nobody ever dies a natural death in a, in a murder mystery. So someone must have killed her. So it must have been the doctor. And um, at the end, sure enough, the doctor says, oh, it was me. And my father just looked at me and said, how did you know? I said, well, because. But he said he spent the whole of, whole of the mystery. And it, it suddenly looks so obvious when someone says it, you know. So um, so how did, does your husband enjoy watching movies with you, you know, mystery movies, you know, where you say, well, this person did it and that's the end of it? Um, <laughs> well, he likes to see if I'm right. You know, if I'll, I'll say I think it was him. I and see. then. You know, we'll have a little bet to see at the end. He hates watching period dramas with me because I was, I'm a bit of a pedant because I write historical fiction. If I see an anachronism, I'll start saying, they never said that in those days, or he wouldn't have talked to her like that. And it must get very boring to listen to, actually. I'm, I'm well, you must have quite a challenge today because that's a quite a, sort of a contemporary uh, way of doing these period pieces by using modern slang and all of that, which, which, I can live with to a degree, but sometimes it just drives me insane. My yeah. wife and I do the same thing. We, we we point out all the things that are anachronistic and, and all that in these stories. Yeah. Well, um, so back to this particular story, um, See No Evil. Um, again, without divulging too much, we have to say that there appear in this st story communists and Nazi, Nazi-influenced people, uh, very wealthy people, very people on the lower uh, economic, socioeconomic ladder. Uh, we have religious people, non-religious people. And um, it's not a novel in which I think you, I mean, you could say that the non-Catholics in the novel do bad things, but, you know, it's not as if the Catholics are wholly, um, and there aren't a whole lot of them in this, other than the priests, but there are a few. Um, the non that the Catholics are sort of always the paragons of virtue. Um, I'm sorry, I missed I missed just a little bit of what you said just then. Just the I'm last sorry. few words. The Catholics are not entirely the paragons of virtue no. in the story. No, I mean I don't. Um, I don't create plaster saints. Um, I think you know. I'm very keen to to make it clear that we're we're all fallen and you know um, we all sin and I don't I don't like it when characters are very squeaky clean because I think that's where you start to merge into propaganda. Um, I mean I've read I, I was given a novel to read once years ago which it was a Christian novel by an evangelical writer and it was just like that the Christian characters were so wonderful. And they were so perfect. And, you know, they all had names like Nathan and they belonged to local Christian rock bands. And they they always <laughs> had the best possible motives for everything. And maybe it's because I'm not called Nathan and I don't belong to a Christian rock band that I didn't get it. But I think I think that's what can be very off-putting, in fact, sometimes about Christian fiction. You know, we, we have to be we have to be realistic about what we are. But it's it's a question of the journey and that Father Gabriel, through his ministry, to those, so there are a few Catholic characters in there, right. can hopefully reach out to them and 
they can repent and they have the opportunity to put their lives on a better track. You know, it's not a it's not a dark story in that sense either, that there's always the hope that people can turn their lives around. You right. Know. And, and, and he's not uh, I mean, he, he does what you would expect a priest to do, but he's not especially preachy or whatever in his encounter with people and he, in his encounters. Uh, I'm I'm amazed at his persistence uh, with I mean, you, you can understand why he would be persistently present to the one of the Catholic characters in the story. But many other characters are not Catholic. And nevertheless, he he's a presence to them. He's a witness to them. With again, without being preachy, mm. so I just, I just found that interesting. That that's the way you made the character, and the temptation I would think uh, might be to make the, the priest character not just simply a super saint, which you know he's obviously a, a good man, but he's got his flaws, and he's aware of his flaws. So the temptation would be to make him sort of a super saint, and that all of the encounters would be, you know, sort of these theological discourses and, and yes. trying to move people to uh, the Catholic church or something, but you don't do that. No. No, I mean, I think I, I try to make him as realistically of his time as much as a, you know, a priest, a priest of the 1940s. And he does have the gentle touch. Of course, he's a late vocation, right. which so does. Talk a little bit about that. Cause I think his background Mm. is very fascinating and, and and that comes through in terms of his own in his own spiritual as his spiritual struggles but there are there are his spiritual struggles mm. if you could talk a little bit about his background it'd be great yes he, he was married he had a child he lost his wife and child very tragically and it was after that that he uh he turned to the monastery looking for peace initially um he's been a, a priest for about nine, 10 years by the time the story starts. But he does have this background and he has the grief and the the sense of guilt because he wasn't able to save them. And you can see that that would drive so much of his determination to protect the innocent um, in his work as an amateur detective. So there's that side of things, but it also means he is very understanding of loss, you know, at a time when many, many people are suffering loss, when pretty much every family would be grieving for somebody. It it gives him, um, in fact, he, he actually says when he's talking to his friend, Alan, he said he, he feels it gives him a way to, to, to get close to people. Um, so there's that aspect to it. But he isn't afraid of being completely honest as well. So when Paul, the communist, sort of says, um, oh, no, could you put in a good word for me? He makes it quite clear he's not going to encourage a Catholic to let his niece marry a communist, you know, right. um, which is exactly what he would have said. Um, and so he, you know, he knows where to draw the lines. And sometimes the characters don't like that because they don't expect it. It's well, and, and certainly today we, we've become for good or ill, much more accommodating to the society. Mm. And um, I'm not going to, I don't want to kind of bash priests today or something like that, but, but, you know, I, I, you know, as, as is true of many of us, you know, I've been in situations where you feel as if the Catholic or the Catholic priest should say or do something. And he says nothing or does nothing because to say something is to become, you know, socially out of line, you know, and, and I, well, of course we can be bores about it too, but. Yeah, but no, I, th I think it's, it saddens me because I think there is always a fear 
of offending or hurting or whatever. But I always feel if the truth is told firmly but kindly, then you know it it will it will bear fruit. I, I infinitely prefer it personally if somebody is honest with me. Um, I, I find, you know, I, I would hate to think that somebody was just saying something because they thought it was sort of polite. I mean, the British are very polite, you probably noticed. Um, yes. You know, you practically... You know, the, the, the Although house... I, I, I've seen sessions of Parliament. I don't, I don't know how polite they are there, but anyway. <laughs> well, compa compared, with, um, compared with my motherland, they're very polite. They don't throw things at each other. Oh, well, um, that's good. You know, <laughs> you don't get angry mobs coming outside the Parliament buildings. But yes, I mean... It's, uh, I, I must apologize for our politicians at the moment. Um, oh, well, I can apologize for some of ours too, but <laughs> we're on the same boat. <laughs> Let's not get into that. Um, but, but, you know, I, I think that's, and I suppose that's really the, perhaps the, the, the way Father Gable behaves like that. It's maybe the way, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm setting up him up as an example because he does get it wrong sometimes, but he tells people the truth because he does actually care about them. He doesn't want them to make a mistake. And he I mean, takes, takes his faith, faith seriously. Again, without being a propaganda tool, he mm -hmm. takes it seriously. And so he acts the way you would expect someone who takes it seriously would act. Yeah. Um, I mean, like, you know, it's like the way a parent ought to act, if you think about it. You know, if you love your children, you'll tell them when you think they're wrong, you know. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes my children think I tell them that too much, and I probably do. <laughs> oh, my children too. My children too. So, um, all right. So, Father Gabriel, see no evil. People talk about, you know, summer reads. This is a great summer read. Um, before we got on to this call, uh, I was asked where I would pe have people start. They could start with this. There'd be no problem, right? You can go here. And the fact that you've had two other Father Gabriel mysteries doesn't mean you can't start with this one, right? Yeah. But but I, I like The Vanishing Woman. And, okay. And it, it may be a, a similar thing as with uh, Poor Banished Children. That's the first one I read, so oh. that's the one I got into. But any of these are great uh, summer reads, and you're working on the next one, right? Yeah, number four, in which you, you will learn. A, a preview? Well, you will learn a lot more about his past. It okay. will come back to haunt him. He will be dealing with um, a murder that looks like a tragic accident. Um, All right. Very yeah. good. Yeah, but he'll be very he'll be going way back into his past. There's another book project of yours that I think is in production with us right now. Yeah. You know the one I'm talking about? I don't want to give away too much. Believe it or not, I have three books in production with you at the moment. So let me think which was it co-authored? Yes. Yes, that one. Yes. Can we give can we give people a little bit of a hint about that because that that is a that's very different from Father Gabriel, it's yeah. very very different from the other novels that you've done. It's it's a kind of genre I love, um, but just tell us a little bit about yeah. it. Um, I co-authored this book with uh, my great friend Kevin Turley. It's the first time I've ever co-authored a novel. It's quite unusual to do that because it's a fairly solitary exercise. Um, and it's it's the horror genre, uh, which is a completely new departure for me. I've never written on um, this subject before. So think vampires, think the early days of Hollywood, all those creepy films, and that is the backdrop. It's set in the 1950s looking back so um yes very different and um 
Do we know when it's coming out? Am I allowed to ask? I, I, I will not say. And the reason I won't say is if I'm wrong, then I'll get angry emails. Oh, okay. I, I've been on television or radio before, and, and, and somebody was asked about a book that they heard was coming out. And I said, it's going to be out in September or whatever. And then if it's delayed, then I get the e- email. Well, you said that, you know, this is going to come out. So, um, yeah. but uh, I think people are going to love that book. And, you know, this is really, I think, an important, I'm glad uh, we're talking about this and also talking about mystery novels and Catholic writing because, you know, the Catholic universe is the whole universe. It is the whole universe. And so we can tell stories using murder mystery genre, sci-fi, Michael Bryant's done science fiction, other other people have done science fiction who are, uh, you know, Catholic writers, uh, and now horror. So I think it's exciting. Yeah. Okay. Who are your favorite writers? Oh, gosh. I've got a list a mile long. Um, well, I've been hugely influenced by all the classics, Dickens, um, Jane Austen, George Eliot. Um, I, I find I go through phases. When I was a teenager, I had a huge Thomas Hardy phase. Okay. I now absolutely cannot stand Thomas Hardy. I can't bear going anywhere near Tess of the D'Urbervilles. Um, but I, I went to school right in that area where Thomas Hardy was writing. Right. He was right. a West Ham writer. Whereas I didn't like Dick, Dickens as a teenager, and I've rediscovered Dickens more recently. So Why didn't you like Dickens as a teenager? I made the mistake with Dickens, and I've tried not to make this mistake with my children. I started reading Dickens far too young, um, I, you know, when I was really very young. Um, and even though I was old, old enough and could read well enough to read the stories, I wasn't mature enough to really understand the social commentary and all the, the many, many layers of subtext. So I just, I found bits of it silly, the names and things like that. And I just, I couldn't quite get sort of under the skin of it. Whereas reading it from the point of view of maturity, I'm just loving rediscovering all those novels again. Excellent. Well, okay. So we're in the 19th century. What about the 20th? Um, pretty eclectic. I mean, I've read um, a lot of, um, Sort of contemporary novelists like Salman Rushdie, for example. I never got on with never got on with magical realism, but um, I I was always when I first started writing, I I read a lot of um, non-European authors because I was trying to find a voice, and I felt with my Maltese background, I needed to look elsewhere to try to make that come to life. And you know, and I love the fact that. With Rushdie's early books, he used the oral tradition a lot in his books, um, which fits a lot more with my own sort of storytelling background. So um, sort of Midnight's Children, books like that were very influential for me. But I also I found a lot of contemporary writers because they're so secular, in many cases, very anti-religious. I also chafed against that. I took a lot from the writing style, but felt... I wanted to move away from that. I tell you, a priest said to me that he felt the problem with modern writing is that it tells us a lot about the human mind, but it tells us nothing about the soul. Oh, wow. That's a powerful yeah. statement. Very interesting. So Father Stephen Wang, I remember I was, I was at a reception when he said it. And I remember thinking that is just absolutely correct. And with my own writing, I want to be able to write about the soul. Well, that's very powerful. Um, so you've mentioned some writers. Uh, I, I sort of did an awkward transition from the various genres of Catholic writing uh, that are emerging today. 
to the question of writers, but what kind of, what genre do you like reading? What fictional genres do you like reading? Um, I do like historical novels. Um, I suppose because I write them. Well, I I do read a lot of crime fiction, I have to admit, but I do try and read some slightly more serious stuff as well. Mm -hmm. Um, I love historical novels when they're well-written. I just find them an absolute joy. I do find that the um, the anachronistic attitudes in mm-hmm. a lot of historical novels are very jarring. But when it all comes together perfectly, it's really beautiful. Um, it really works. So, yes, anything, particularly things looking at the early 20th century, late 19th century, I find that period very interesting. Have you read any Tim Powers? No, and I feel as if I should have done. So he's, yeah, he's an American uh, sort of fantasy uh writer and he does a lot of historical stuff and he always makes it so that uh the, the main historical character in the novel uh, what transpires in the novel has to be plausible based upon that historical personage's real life and real chronology so you can't have right. you know he, he, we know that he in 1943 the character was you know in France but uh, this novel is going to set him, you know, in Portugal or something like that. So he, he, he takes that seriously. But then, you know, he brings in all kinds of supernatural elements to the story. I find him fascinating because I like that fantasy type stuff. But I also like historical fiction. I like learning history. Mm-hmm. Not that I don't know the difference between fiction and history. But I like learning history as I'm reading uh, novels. It's fun. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, with a really a really well-researched historical novel, it can bring a period to life in such a beautiful way. I mean, I loved, for example, Lucy Beckett's book, Leaves yes. Falling, because, do you know, I actually felt as if I was there, and I found myself thinking that the Cat and Massacre might not happen. You know, right. it's, it's so vividly drawn. You actually, even though you know how it has to end, right. she, she writes it without a hint of what's coming. And, yeah. you know, book like that you know you can just read it and read it and just lose yourself in the period well absolutely and and i feel that way about this most dangerous innocence do you know i think that was my favorite book to write really why um i i liked the idea of the boarding school scenario i went to boarding school myself i'm not going to say if it's in any way resembling let's learn a lot about you here (laughs) <laughs> yes. Well, um, a, a nun from my old school wrote a rather sneering review of um, Abolition of Woman, and okay. um, I suggested I send her a most dangerous innocence. And um, um, I said that the fact that you know, well, actually, I won't give away the ending. Might might give the wrong impression about my education, but um, I just I thought the the scenario was was kind of. I suppose I wanted to bring a comedy element into a very serious subject. And because it is seen through the eyes of um, an autistic maths whiz in a boarding school who's bored out of her mind and really a bit too old for that kind of environment. So sniffing around for trouble, you know, it's going to end badly. Mm -hmm. Um, But with all that sort of quirkiness of that sort of uniquely British microcosm of a society. You know, there's something about a boarding school. Um, right. I mean, I found, I found when we were, were in the editing stage, there were so many moments where the editors would come back to me and say, what on earth is a tuck shop? <laughs> you know, why, what, why is he throwing a rubber across the room? And what's that about? You know? <laughs> oh, no. I, suddenly I found out what that word means in American English, which it does not mean in Britain. Um, That's right. 
yeah, I tried to think what sort of person they thought he was. Um, but I realised that there's a whole language, there's a whole vocabulary um, connected up that even some British people wouldn't get because it is almost like its own little society. So I found the idea of just recreating that and trying to do the, the thing of describing the war at a time when nobody knew how it was going to end. Because a lot of stories set during the war, they presuppose that everything is going to be fine and we're going to win. But of course, in 1940, nobody knew that. Um, and it's sort of, it was a challenge of creating you know, a situation where they're really worried there's going to be an invasion. You know, there's, there's, there's all sorts of fears, you know, without anticipating the ending. Well, yeah, you do a good job. You, it's, it's, you bring the reader in and I, as a reader, got as excited in reading it as you are excited in describing it. And also that sense of, yes, even though I know how everything comes out and what, what happens, how we get in the war and, and all of that that sense of being there in the moment, um, you did a good job of conveying that. Uh, and, and that's really what I need when I read a historical novel. I don't want to read it from the perspective of, I know how all this comes out. I want to read it as if I can put myself in the mindset of the character and the story is yeah. unfolding for me as it's unfolding for that character. Yeah, exactly. That, that was the, the plan. So I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it. But, um... That was My that. wife and I, we, we just watched again the movie yesterday, you know, the Beatles movie. I don't know if you've seen that film. I haven't. Is it good? Well, you should see that because it's a lot of fun. But it's it's also kind of a fantasy storyline where this character winds winds up in an accident. He wakes up in a world where nobody knows the Beatles, right? He's a musician. Oh, yes. I have heard about this. So yes. he passes off. his The Beatles music is his own music. And one of the things we were fascinated with is the experience, because we were little kids, very, very little, of course, when the, Be when the Beatles were first around. Very little, yeah. Yeah, it's very tiny. Um, yeah. <laughs> hardly in existence. Um, when my wife and I, when when we first heard the Beatles, so we had a kid's perspective on this music. And so you're, you're thinking, well, what would it be like to hear this for the first time without a context, you know, and, and, and so on. And that made me think, you know, of your book and what you just said, you know, Most Dangerous Innocence, you, you, you kind of have that experience of living through the eyes of these characters, seeing these events through the perspective of these characters. And there is that kind of contingency of history uh, in the lives of these characters that good historical fiction um, creates for the reader. So appreciate that. Thank you. Well, well, well Fiorell, we're going to have to have you back. Uh, I'd love, I'd love to have more conversations with you, not just about your books, but or not just about your fiction, but about um, your book, um, The Abolition of Woman, and some oh. of the biotechnological issues that we face. That, that's a whole other subject. Yeah. Um, but it would be great to have you back. And so we'll, we'll try to schedule a time in which we can do that. Thank you for writing these wonderful novels and telling these wonderful stories. And please keep at it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, God bless you. God bless. Bye-bye. This podcast has been brought to you by Ignatius Press. We encourage you to check out our books and videos at your local Catholic bookstore or wherever else books and videos are sold. You can also sign up to receive special discounts on books and videos at ignatius.com. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Please like the podcast on the website or app from which you listen to it. And please tell your friends about it. I'm Mark Brumley, and on behalf of everyone at Ignatius Press, Thanks for listening.